Janet, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I am really excited about this podcast episode. I know I say that every time, but (laughs) this podcast, the theme is abolition. And you know, that's something that's very important to me in this podcast, we interview Benjamin Lundberg Torres Sanchez, artist and facilitator. I learned so much thinking about the terms abolitionist, thinking about the terms that were associated or are associated with adoption and relating that to my experience within the United States as a Black woman. This interview touched on so many things and we were able to just have this open space where Benjamin shared with us without hesitation. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, this is definitely going to resonate with so many people and help so many people. Yeah, it super humbled me. I learned a lot from this, which I wasn't expecting to learn as much as I did, I guess. I thought coming into this, I'm going to be like, oh, I know all about this topic in comparison to like other interviews we've done. But they super expanded my frameworks, my notions of abolition. But yeah, language in particular, I feel like we always talk about language and about the importance of words. Yes. Yes. But this one, yeah, this one in particular, I, there's a, even for me, quite a big turning point towards the end of the podcast where I'm like, ooh, Here's a term I've been using for years that I'm like, I don't even know if I want to use that term anymore, you know? Exactly. So, yeah, I'm really, exactly. really, I'm trying not to do any spoiler yeah. alert. Yeah, don't, don't, don't say anything. So, so with that said, we could just go ahead and get right into it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Hi, thanks for joining us on Reflect, Recalibrate. Woo, woo. <laughs> We're so happy you're here. Remember to tell your friends, your family, and your foes, yes, your foes, that they too can learn about artivists and artivism by subscribing to RFC anywhere they listen to podcasts. They can also watch and subscribe on YouTube at Reflect Calibrate the Podcast. Well, I think that's that. Now let's get into it. Cool. Thanks, John. Appreciate you having me on. (laughs) Yes. Thank yes. you for coming. Yeah. <laughs> I I have lots of questions just about where you are, what you're wearing, <laughs> Benjamin, and maybe even talk about why are you here? How did you get here? The who, what, when, where, how, why? Sure. Thank you so much, Danny. Um, I'll start. Um, I'm a light-skinned person with dark hair and dark eyes, wearing a handkerchief with a pattern of like hand-drawn eyes as a bandage or compress over my right eye. I'm wearing a bright green sweater and mismatched gold earrings by my friend Elena Soledad, who is the creator of Brooklyn Warmy Designs. Um, I'm here um, as an uninvited settler on unceded Alonian Ramatish lands occupied by San Francisco, California. Um, my space is pretty neutral wall with a piece of framed art behind me. Um, and I'm here to talk about um, work that I'm doing that's bringing together um, community that is uh, variously variously impacted by um, related systems of um, what I would call family regulation, but um, like two examples of those that maybe are clarifying our adoption of foster care, Um, but um, creating sort of like a a commons or a place um, for people to share their creative expressions about their experiences of these systems um, and also to like to find each other. Um, because we are often um, in very disparate community with each other. So yeah, that's what my my focus or my passion or work is is about right now. Great. Awesome. I, I'm saying great and awesome because I'm really excited because I'm an abolitionist and I know there's going to be some really good stuff we're going to talk about today. Some really cool, yeah. important stuff, I should say. Yeah. But before we get into that, Janet, we should introduce ourselves too. Janet, who are you? Where are you? What are you wearing? <laughs> Well, I am Janet, as you can see on screen. If you're not uh, looking at the screen or if you're listening, Janet E. Dandridge is what I go by. And uh, I am a dark-skinned woman 
with a short Afro colored blonde. I have on a multicolor um, African style necklace and a black tank top. I am sitting in front of a wall of or bookshelf of records. And also I am wearing earrings that I purchased at the, uh, the Perez Museum uh, in Miami. And also the necklace that I mentioned um, is from a woman, Adelaide Adeline from Burkina Faso. And I do support her often. I, I wear a lot of uh, her stuff. So I am a white cisgender woman. I am in my office studio. So behind me, I have my drum set and a bunch of art from different people that I've worked with and other artists who I love and adore and collect their work. A bunch of like little postcard size images on my wall. And I have long brownish blondish hair, some big Princess Leia like headphones on, big hoop earrings. And I was fancy today and wore eyeliner. So, yeah, that's where Girl, I'm at. You're always fancy. For the podcast, <laughs> I'm fancy. So, like <laughs> once a month. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. I totally forgot one person. I'm sorry. Can I, can I add this in? Uh, the glasses? The glasses. Yes. I was saying, I was going to come uh, back to you about the glasses. Yeah, the glasses. Those are the most yes. fab thing you're wearing. Yeah, you this have to talk like, about that. Oh my gosh. Uh, June Mines in Washington, D.C. has a boutique shop, These Eyes of Mines. And they are silver frames, round frames with an asymmetrical line in the middle as, instead of a straight line going across the nose bridge. Great. Oh, that was the other thing I was going to ask, Ben. Your cup looks very interesting. You're drinking from, is it coffee or? It looks um, like I'm almost like a tea right now. Um, this is like, um, I don't know the designer, but um, this is porcelain from Wing On Wool, which is the oldest mm -hmm. storefront in Manhattan Chinatown. Um, five generations mm -hmm. of people have um, run the storefront um, and my friend Melum, who's the current uh, owner, um, also started um, an arts and activism organizing project uh, at the storefront um, for community to like sustain the space um, that's called the WOW Project. So, yeah. Oh, okay. Right on. Yeah, the cup almost looked like an iceberg or something. Yeah, it's like what an like... interesting shape. <laughs> so... All of us are awesome, cool supporting artists and people that we know yeah <laughs> yeah this is great i think i think y'all are doing better than me today i was boring and i'm wearing hoop earrings and i'm 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 admittedly drinking from a starbucks coffee cup <laughs> i'm not proud of it it has a really cool elephant on it and i'm obsessed with elephants so everyone always buys me things with elephants on it even if it's from starbucks which i don't necessarily oh, endorse <laughs> consumption under capitalism <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? Can we can we jump right on into the project, Janet? Yeah, let's do this. Tell us about we are holding this. Yeah, so we are holding this is is um, like an evolution of something that started as um, a total experiment that emerged from some pandemic feels, um, and also like the beauty of being able to meet people across great distances online, um, which we already have access to, but maybe was. Um, you know, made just like brought to the forefront of so many people's experiences over these last um, you know couple of years. Um, I reached out to another uh, artist who was also separated from their first family through the adoption system um, after I saw their work in an online exhibition um, in 2020. Um, that person's name is uh, Leah Nichols, um, and Leah is um, my co-founder and co-editor of um, a zine project called You Are Holding This. Um, and we were thinking about um, a couple of things, like sort of like the commodification of art and information on Instagram that kind of like inherits a lot of um, what you might see in uh, a corporate meeting or a nonprofit meeting of like just pithy digestible slides of information that are very directive and tell people what to do. Um, not a lot, and, and also like just the emergence of influencer cultures across lots of different, you know, issue areas. So that also is a part of our landscape as adopted, fostered and trafficked people. Um, there's a lot of sort of like individual, um, output of information from some really, really smart and creative people, um, but done, you know, kind of piecemeal. 
Um, and I think that if isolation and separation are some of the core violences of systems that seek to regulate or surveil or police families, that Leah and I really wanted to connect with people in a way that um, felt, um, well, like engaging the sense of touch, just being able to receive something in the mail, know that it came from specific humans out there um, and that the page itself, um, so this zine acts um, as kind of like a poster on one side and then a collection of work on the reverse side. We wanted people to be able to hold something in their hands. We wanted people to be able to display it in their space if they wished. Um, um, but also the medium of it as a single piece of newsprint is very, very delicate. Um, and so I think like all of these things came together behind that creative impulse. Um, yeah, we just really wanted to have something that people could hold in their hands um, and that acted as a portal out to other impacted people's lives, stories, work, creative expressions, um, and thematically are centered on um, abolition of these uh, systems, but then also um, connecting to other um, movements for liberation and justice um, and abolition as well. Um, because I think like so many people who have experiences that get siloed in a specific kind of like issue or identity um, often are influenced to kind of like remain in that silo. And so like, there are so many of us who like work on other things, um, you know, so we want to be able to create mm, inter-movement connection and weave those things together um, as people who are directly impacted by um, a system that has impacted our families primarily. So um, I'll, I'll just tack on that we are holding this now as like a media distribution hub that will bring continue to um, bring people the zine, but also other projects. Um, so we're working with individual artists, we're working with collectives, um, and also um, spin-off projects from uh, the zine. Um, so what we're hoping is that independent publishing will be an avenue um, for people to, um, yes, get information about this in the way that this can be political education, but also like primarily a social space um, that lives on the page. I heard you bring up the term fam family regulation. And I wanted you to describe to us more what that means for people who may not understand what that phrase actually means. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's tough because there's a lot of language that comes from within community that, um, you know, like we don't always all agree on terms, but I use family regulation systems as the largest umbrella for practices that, um, yeah, are about controlling um, and shaping um, families and other uh, systems of kinship um, towards a kind of like one fit, size fits all um, reality. Um, I think that, for instance, in the US, if you think about, um, the histories of where child welfare or adoption emerge from, which are the control of indigenous people and the theft of their land, um, you know, the, the theft of uh, African people, I mean, the commodification of their bodies and labor and family members, um, and the like direct practices of separating family members from each other for profit, um, and also the way that immigrant families in the US were controlled um, are seen as unfit um, and their children were taken um, to be free or cheap labor for aging Midwestern people um, in more rural contexts. Um, you can see that um, the state, like our state, the US and, and many others have had a vested interest in kind of like controlling the, the contours of family and also reproduction of groups that they have historically seen as problems. Um, so when I talk about family regulation, we're talking about the way that both state and private industry come together to um, sort of shape family towards, um, you know, like all the isms <laughs> um, uh, along lines of like cis heteronormativity, um, so patriarchy, um, 
in capitalist ways, like influencing people to have like small nuclear families that are isolated from community um, uh, in ableist ways, in Christian supremacist ways, in white supremacist ways. Um, and so um, we can see that both um, like uh, the way that children and families are commodified under capitalism and also the way that the state is trying to regulate certain types of people and their communities out of existence, um, all of these things converge in systems like child protective services or adoption. Um, and that's specifically what I'm referring to. The thing that stuck out to me first, a lot of things stuck out to me, but is how you said that story works. And I would like to go back to that comment of how do you know story works or maybe how have you seen story works like why is story so important in what you're doing and maybe just in like activism in general something i'm also thinking about is the artist kate DeCicio. she's a mural artist and she does a bunch of stuff and one thing that she told me once was how she felt like the prison industrial complex was like the backdrop to America. And I hadn't really thought about this complex as the background backdrop to America as well. And how all stories, like all facets of our lives weave into it, whether we know it like, or, or not, whether it's conscious or not. So yeah, I'm just, those, those are the things I'm thinking about right now, but can you maybe elaborate a little bit on just story? Yeah, absolutely. I think like it's so critical um, always um, to be thinking about how does my individualized story connect to something collective and then maybe within, um, I know that like, for instance, if I say I am adopted, that connects me to other people who have experienced family separation through adoption, um, and all of our stories could weave together, but so too could I weave my story with, um, you know, a directly impacted parent organizer who is trying to, um, you know, halt the state from forcibly removing their children from their home. It could connect me to families who are experiencing family separation at borders. My story could connect to um, like people's stories of dispossession of land or from having um, themselves or family members or ancestors stolen and forcibly displaced or removed from homeland. So I think like there are so many like really important reasons why people I think must be telling their stories, but also I think in ways that invite collectivity and invite relationship and connection between um, stories. So I think like to me, um, I've, I've received a lot of like creative education that su suggests something about universality or like wide appeal. And I think like more so um, I'm really excited and curious about the connective piece, like, um, and how we can still have a lot of plurality while seeking out what are the connections between um, very different experiences of related harms. That sounds like the intersectionality uh, that Oh my goodness, Kimberly Crenshaw, I believe, is the person who, you know, formulated that idea. And from what you just said about how you can present yourself, the label, this one, this one label that can connect um, so many different ways, I don't think I had thought about how foster uh, adoption connects to my feeling of loneliness, displacement, being unaware of my histories as a person labeled Black in the United States of America whose ancestors were forcibly brought here uh, and who also some may not have been forcibly brought here, but just not knowing. So. Mm -hmm thinking about that and thinking about how you said these connections, I had never actually put that together thinking about, you know, fostered uh, people, uh, adopted people, and how that actually can, you know, connect. And there's this intersection there. And thinking about how, you know, trauma, trauma is, is, is like this ball in the center. And there's so many, 
pieces that are pulled from this little ball that, you know, it's, it's like we can all connect just with the example of trauma. There's other spaces, obviously, joy, you know, from the extremes that we can connect with because of these experiences. So, you know, thank you for just bringing that into my, my brain. I, I understand connecting in, you know, other ways with other people, uh, groups of people who label themselves, you know, in different ways, but had never, you know, put that together, you know? Um, so, you know, I, I definitely appreciate that. I'd also say, Janet, I really appreciate just receiving that reflection from you. And it's just like really amazing feedback to just in this moment, like see how you are meeting me in that. And I think like so much of that is also like um, the, the, like creating space to invite that connection has come out of, um, you know, also just the practice of a lot of us experimenting with um, trying to be extremely explicit about the processes and actors that have impacted mm. our lives. So rather than saying I was adopted, I, which I rarely do anymore, I say, something along the lines of I was separated from my first family in Colombia for 28 years um, through a private transnational adoption process that was administrated by lawyers and social workers who prior to my removal coerced my mom into terminating her parental rights, mm. which like is a really different like mode of storytelling than, than flattening it into like, I am adopted, I was adopted. So I think like, it also invites like many, many other points of connection. Like, of course, like our stories are different, but there, there will be more, um, yeah, entry points for folks to like say that something that you said is a part of my story too, or a part of someone that I care deeply about story as well. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thank you for that. You know, you, you, you mentioned one label and I know what you just said also about not conflating and actually expanding by sharing and being open and giving, you know, those details. Um, you know, we don't always want to share. However, I'm wondering, you know, you did share a, a bit about your story uh, of adoption. Did you have anything else that you wanted to share with us and our audience um, that, might, that might continue to open and expand that space? Sure. I mean, I think I'll, I'll just go for something that like is like a new revelation for me because, you know, I'm connecting with first family across like my own um, processes of like reclaiming language. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there's always, I mean, even with my like white U.S. American family, like it bears asking for stories to be told and retold over because I always get new details. Um, you know, it's depending on, on the time and place that I'm asking. And so, but I, I think like something that is, I'm really thinking about um, in my, in my Colombian family and my first family uh, are, are two major details of this story. One, that um, my mom is in a process of, um, you know, healing uh, her own family separation because she and her siblings were, um, basically like pushed out of the, the, uh, the extended family after my grandparents died. So, you know, they were, they experienced their own pro like processes of ab abandonment and estrangement from family, um, losing like stability in housing. I mean, just needing to be a unit as siblings together. Um, so just witnessing my mom's own like reclamation processes and like trying to get, um, you know, reclaim her connections with family members is like just highlights to me how um, this is intergenerational and also like that uh, it's not often that that family members are doing like the abandoning like we're abandoned first by the state and um, and I like I'm taking the idea from Ruth Wilson Gilmore who talks about organized abandonment um, so I think like that's a like a really, really important concept to like just hold close and spend time with. And then the other dimension of my story is that like my first father is also my uncle. Um, he was the partner of my aunt, so my my mom's brother-in-law. And so I came into being through assault, through rape. And so um, 
this also like is the most personal like foregrounding of like my abolitionist um like just how i'm trying to like be in practice and live out abolition is that um i do like my father was murdered a few years after i was born um just through like gun violence um at a place that he worked but i also like don't think that we should have like where he living that he should be abandoned to an institution like prison i do think that he should account for his harm but i also don't think that like we can warehouse people in places like prisons or mental health facilities or even like elder care you know like um so i think like these two things are are like really at the forefront of a lot of like my own experience of my, my story as it touches both like how do we organize with people across like various experiences um and also like really hold close an ethic of like nobody is disposable and nobody is abandoned um wow yeah. i mean that uh, just sharing that with us is you know i i, I mean it's I, I, I am thinking about your mother and her healing and continued healing. And I'm thinking also about what you said about your father not being put into that system because that's not necessarily the prison uh, or, or an asylum uh, because that's not necessarily, I'm paraphrasing you, you know, the path that we should take. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard line because I think like um, there, uh there's a really amazing writing that um the person who who runs abolish time who also publishes their work in print um uh just put out about like the idea that like a lot of abolitionist thinking and practice has been co-opted by this sense that like there should if we can't find an immediate sort of like community consequence for somebody's harmful actions that were just sort of like okay, I don't know what to do. Um, I don't wanna be carceral or like, I don't want my actions being related to like the practices of like policing and imprisoning people. And so we just throw up our hands and say like, I guess there's no consequences for this behavior. And so I wanna be like really, really, really clear that um, like my, my idea is not to be an apologist for my first father's violence uh it's more so that like i would i'm like deeply interested in um starting with my mom and my aunt in understanding like what they desire and also listening to their their story of what they think about healing and for forgiveness um which is not excusing and i think like maybe the way that that ripples out across generations for me is that even though like i'm uh you know a non-binary like fluid person like i feel best positioned in my colombian family to like call masculine people into conversation about like the patriarchal context of like our family and of colombian culture at large so i think like the consequence um has to be taken up somewhere i think um and I hope that we can do that through the collectivity of our extended family and how that like ripples outward. Um, but you know, they're you know, they're like some young folks like coming up right now in my family. And I feel like they it it's extremely important for us to just be talking directly about who um, you know, my first father is and was. In, in no uncertain terms. Um, and to have to have like a reckoning with that as a part of like our shared story. Um, yeah, so I, I think like, I just, so like no, no apologism and, and we're not talking about a world free of consequence, but I do think that like those consequences are going, like would emerge from um, those who have experienced harm and like, be geared towards like their healing and thriving um primarily yeah um and that sometimes can look like saying like i need you to 
leave my community or like, you know, some these really hard lines that I think sometimes people like position as like related to policing or imprisoning or or building a border out and like exclude excluding people. But I think like that is still I think the violence that we experience in like these institutions like comes from trying to meet experience like through just a, a like really kind of like regimented like way. Like it always like this action always has this consequence. Um, and not like seeking plurality and like really listening to people. Mm. Um, so yeah, thanks for giving me time to just expand on that. Cause I think it's, it's something that like, uh, I'm trying to like bring clarity to right now in this moment of speaking yeah. with y'all, but yeah. also don't have a, an, an absolute answer. And um, I'm still learning so much about like what that should look like and how to practice it. Danny, uh, real quick, real quick, because it's something literally yeah, yeah. I wrote that is- No, go ahead, go ahead. Follow up to that. First of all, Ben, um, you you mentioned so many different things, um, like organized abandonment, um, the abolished Times newspaper, uh, talking about Colombian culture at, at large, and then just, just going back to the healing in families and how do we move forward with healing if we don't talk about what has happened, mm -hmm. right? And if we aren't explicit with that, uh, mm -hmm. that's that's base therapy. You know, you have to mm -hmm. communicate and conver converse about what it is that's happening before being able to truly, you know, move forward. And maybe I shouldn't even use the word truly, but move forward. Um, and I had, a, I had a question, you know, speaking to what you said about it being formulated right now, your answer regarding, you know, these hard lines and what to do, because that was something I was thinking about. Uh, and I'm going to read my, my question. I, I was saying people may ask if there aren't agencies to facilitate and regulate, right, adoption and fostering, what would you suggest to replace that? And would and what would that oversight look like? And and I think you 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 know you touched on that at the very end, you know, thinking about well, yeah, what 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 is it? You know, what would we have if we don't have that? If we don't to utilize these these agencies that have been put in place, you know, for a long period of time, that can kind of be quote unquote unbiased, as some people say, which that's not true. Yeah, huge question. And also like a common question. Um, I think that um, first I wanna say that like um, a lot of, uh, I'll just say like abolitionists, whether you're talking about the abolition of prisons and police or you're talking about um, family regulation systems like adoption and foster care um, are often tasked um, immediately with like um, providing the like solution or answer, which um, I think like we, we are like, um, passionately working on and also like humans are are just you know out in our world noticing things that like are are wrong or off or like undesirable in some way um, and we don't always task um, that noticing with providing solutions so I, I think like it's really really vital that we continue to be able to notice harm without um, yeah needing to always be tasked with providing the solution. Um, that said, I think that there's also um, the question, um, I think is earnest um, as you ask it and as many others do, and also like grounded in some, like um, it, it, it's hard to not misunderstand the system when um, it's been, when there's such a like dedicated misinformation campaign around what adoption of foster care is. <laughs> and so I think like, Speaking of foster care, folks immediately think about abuse. And I think like we will always live in a world where harm happens. And so I think like that's a hard thing for people to hold as a reality. So that's one piece of it. I think that um, the majority of children who are in the foster care system are not experiencing abuse. Um, they're experiencing what is termed as neglect, which is usually the symptoms of poverty. 
and furthermore, usually um, assessed under some really classist, ableist, and racist metrics that are just deeply, deeply embedded in social work um, and law and policy. So I think like that's one thing that is a big struggle for me is like, I just finished a, 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 an artivism fellowship with Broadway Advocacy Coalition and there was such a extreme emphasis on policy. And there was not a lot of room to, of course like policy can mean something other than law, but there was like not a lot of space to discuss just even the notion that maybe like the law is not for us it has not been like the criminal legal system has not been like designed to serve like most people um and so i think like so much of this like emerges from like um yeah the protection of like um wealthy people's interests and like a certain kind of like cultural maintenance that is like yeah, emerges from all the isms we talked about before. So what to do, I think, is um, just like a piecemeal example. It's like there was an, an like an activist judge in Louisiana um, who maybe you can throw up her name in post. I'll find it for you. Who like just made it her mission before she retired to throw out as many cases as she could in family court that didn't meet rigorous standards of like best efforts to reunify children with their family. And that's one person like taking it upon themselves to, to do that. Like we, we actually can't like rely on that kind of saviorism from, from people. Um, but I think like speaking again of plurality, there's so much kind of like kinship, familial community technology that has been suppressed by dominant culture. And so like we can look at so many people's ancestors and ancestral ways and say like, this is a way that we can deal with harm in a family unit within kinship within our community um you know i think like because of capitalism and the privacy privatization of family and community um something that like i'm trying to like very slowly learn about um how family has been constructed historically um and influenced into a different shape through through capitalism i think like there are so many uh, ways that people took care of each other and had responsibility over more people than just like your um, immediate, what's what I think a lot of people think of as their immediate family that holds a lot of the answer to this, you know? And I think like we can see in real time, like there was um, a case of uh, a tribal community in British Columbia who who successfully blocked the removal of children from their tribal land by British Columbian um, uh, like CPS workers because they already had an action plan about how to hold harm in community. And so like, you know, we're talking about a mass mobilization of people, like bodies standing like in front of like uh, social workers trying to remove indigenous children and saying like, no, um, this is our plan and we want you to leave, you know? And so I think like just respecting people's like self-determination, like what they know um, in this moment and across generations, I think all these things like are really hard for, for states or as governments as we know it to, to hold because like, because of this question that you're asking about oversight and regulation, people are like, what is our standard? And I think like the reality is like there cannot be one standard of care, um, but that we need to be like sharing really generously all the time. Like, how are we <laughs> trying to care for each other? Um, and I think like exchange between like various like cultural ways of doing that is important. I mean, I think like we no no one group or person has the answer. And so I think like it's just has to continue to churn, but not um, not within like law and policy and not within like appealing to electeds, not within trying to reform a system that um, is rotten at its root. I think like the like the hardest thing for me within 
community of adopted foster and traffic people even just like to like narrow it to that is that I see so many people talk about broken systems and I think like the most important reframe that I've received from prison abolitionists is like that it's not broken it's working as intended I think that frees up like so much um like energy and creativity in like my like heart and spirit when I'm not trying to like uh I saw Marion Papa refer to it as like not trying to plug up all of the the holes in the dam but I'm I'm working on some other kind of project like so I think like that's why like the zine project like you're you're holding this and we are holding this as like an even broader collective space are geared towards like what is our creative expression what are we imagining and dreaming about um and uh it is like in and of itself a like creative generative like building project um and sometimes it hurts my heart to know that like part of like what we have to build right now is just like a way for us to know each other since we're so geographically dispersed um and even like if i were trying to convene something like local to where i am it's really difficult to to find a way of even knowing who's out there exactly for the reasons that you described before like referring to silences you know and so i think like one thing that i'm like slowly like making peace with is that like there's a huge things to be built like in in just how community meets each other that have to proceed or like ground being able to organize ourselves so that's sort of like how for me this project brings together creative expression and organizing it's like just building the spaces like the the gathering places that we need in order to even just like see and exchange and and to be knowing each other I was just going to say for those people who are listening and not watching, Janet and I are doing a lot of head nodding <laughs> and snapping and like, yes, 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 yes. Everything is really resonating with me. I, I, I'm assuming with you too, Janet, if you want to <laughs> expound, I see you giving a thumbs up. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, and yes, uh, everything that Ben is sharing with us is again, just the connections. I think that's an important yeah. word for today is mm -hmm. the connections. And right. I am, I'm just like, what is next? You know, as far as what are we doing right now? And, and then what is next? Because it, there is always the work to do. And mm -hmm. I think that's something that then uh, in the collective, you are holding this is doing with that design, you know, making this work that continues because it's a continuous process and until we get to this space where it and i don't even know what to call that space you know ben mm -hmm. you brought up that there's there's always going to be harm so i don't even know what the question yeah. is but yes i you know i have a yeah i have a question about that ben because a lot of what you're saying to me sounds like restorative justice, but you've purposely not used that phrase. And so now I'm up, I think my brain is about to explode because I'm like super, super all about restorative justice. But now I'm like, maybe that's because of the kind of perspective I'm coming in from, you know, because now, because now when I'm thinking about it, I'm like, well, here is one like system that now we're thinking about applying to everything. And I'm like, that's problematic too. And I didn't, you know, I didn't really think about that until right now. So yeah, can you, can you talk a little about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think what I'm like still learning about is are the ways that transformative and restorative justice, um, like movements towards those practices have been co-opted in the same way that we're seeing abolition co-opted right now. Like it's not sexy to refer to like reformist kind of ambition. And so like, especially I would say organizations who are like really don't like have a lot of skin in the game of like really trying to organize people, but are like, I think that our artistry should be related to like something political. Um, and this is the like top shelf language I want to reach for. It's abolitionist, it's restorative justice now. So I think like all of these things, like I'm trying to understand them as like things we're doing or trying to practice. And so like restorative justice seems like a tool to offer a situation, 
you know, but like with mindfulness that like people involved may not like want to take this pathway. Like I'm seeing something like unfold locally between young people and um, like the, oh, I'm still learning how like positions are referred to in, in government in San Francisco, but like basically like the school board, um, there, were, there was some like racialized comments made by somebody in the school board, um, uh, racist comments. Um, and a group came together to recommend a restorative justice process initially, um, but like the most impacted people like ultimately are calling for resignation. So like you, I think like, it was really, really important that restorative justice was like, that people like put it on the table <laughs> and said like, this is what we think a, a process like that could look like. And that ultimately folks who were most harmed by this person's comments were like, no, this is what we desire actually. Um, and it, it is like, the, the person whose like life or career or work will be impacted by like being called to resign, like, I can't see that as like carceral, like they're not going to, like they're not, there's so many things that will continue about their life should they step down. Um, but there is a direct consequence for their actions that emerges from communities coming together to, to discuss what should happen, you know? And so I think like um, if, I think it's down to like really listening to what people want. And I think like that's what's really tough about when like people who have experienced um, harm are reach for the car, like for prisons and policing to address that harm. Cause like, I don't think that it's also like a good idea to just be like, no, you're wrong. This is an abolitionist, you know? Um, but like to, to be in political struggle with each other and to be like, I think maybe it could be done this way. Um, I think it's always making an invitation and proposal and be like, what if we tried this? What if we tried this, you know? And so um, I don't think like we can throw out any of these tools and by tools, I mean like transformative restorative justice tools. Um, but yeah, as you said, like maybe not um, like this is forever and always the thing that we all reach for. What I'm, what I'm seeing from the zine and from the work from the hub is, is as you said, your, your, sounds like the primary objective is about connections, making connections and making a space. And then within that sharing knowledge, sharing stories, and then also sharing research and then also collective envisioning, would you say there are any other objectives with the zine that maybe we're not summarizing here? Any other things that main, major things that you're trying to do that we, we haven't discussed? Yeah. I think like one small dimension is just like that this is independent and like we are not trying, we're neither trying to reiterate like a nonprofit um, nor are we like, we're not doing academic publishing um, so I think like we want what comes to the project to serve community and that's like an ongoing question. Um, and we want to be able to put out really strong materials that, um, you know, kind of circumvent the processes of like, you know, big publishing and academia. And so I think like, uh, a, a big piece of this is also like community self-determination, but communities defined broadly and, and like creating a space where like maybe that sense of like who is in community with each other, like will be ever expanding through who finds it and then decides to kind of like link up with it in some way. Because, you know, we started with a zine, which is like a collective project. And, you know, now we're going to be publishing like individual like poet's work or like a manifesto that's coming from a collective space, you know, these different kinds of things that can emerge through the frame because people are saying we share, we share vision together. Um, and that might be expressed differently, but we can see this um, space as a home 
where this can rest as you know one of many places where it may be able to be accessed by people so i think just folks kind of like throwing in and throwing down like and saying like this is um yeah of course take this we think that this is a part of what you're doing um and i think like the just as a practice of like um yeah just generation generously sharing with each other um in a way that is not bound by a lot of um yeah ways that things usually get produced um i think is a huge part of it i wanted to follow up to what you just said then about uh people finding it happenstance i was thinking about and i don't know these statistics at all but children are adopted children are fostered so a child who might not come up on this right this this collectivity and these connections i was just wondering um how have you all been thinking about how these works can get to them? Because, you know, it's, it's part of that healing process. It's part of them being aware and having an understanding. And also you talked about parent groups as, as well, but the folks who, you know, aren't in these spaces or the children who are maybe yearning for something or they're looking, but they don't know where to find it. Are you linking with, or, you know, just, are you how are you all doing that how how are you reaching those those children thanks for this question janet because like it's it's something that is definitely on our hearts and minds um mainly because i think there so many of us experience narrativizing of our experiences from our our families and other forces that are like external to our own like trying to process what had is and has happened to us and so that's um the situation that we find you know children in foster care and in adoptions in and i think like there's so we already know that there's just a lot of dedicated storytelling that positions adoption and foster care as like benevolent systems um, that serves the interests of like people who participate in the foster care system and adopting parents and fostering parents, et cetera. Um, and so there's also like a, a like dedicated like power, money, and influence um, behind like keeping these narratives, critical narratives away from children. <laughs> um, because it would, it would and will be destabilizing to um, these systems and also like ways that people are finding to make kin, like by whatever means necessary. And so I think that one thing that we're working on is that there is an option on the website to sponsor copies of issues of, of materials, um, as well as um, we've just rolled out subscriptions um, and like looking at other models like critical resistances, like abolitionist newspaper um, that like really clearly state your um, subscription is like going to serve this many issues for your own reading and this many um, copies of this publication for people who are experiencing incarceration right now. And so we're thinking about how both um, sponsoring copies and also subscribing um, just to bring some more um, resource towards the the project so that then we're able to send like 200 copies at a time to a partnering, uh, maybe not even organization, but just like a group of people that we trust who um, directly work with young people. I think like acknowledging that like we aren't right now, but also recognize this, this as an issue. And I think like there are a lot of like young, younger organizers that come out of foster care experiences who are more directly linked to folks who are still inside systems and about to age out. I think like I'm really thinking about like teenagers um, and yeah, just how we can um, uh, get this material to, to them directly, but also like 
um, thinking about what is available um, digitally as well, you know? And I think like a few of the projects that are like coming down the line for we are holding this as the hub expands are going to be pay what you wish digital downloads. And so um, like there is something like really particular as we talked about before that we like about having things in print and like embracing the, like the old tradition of zine making where like you could, you know, like pass this along to somebody and, but also, um, yeah, we, we want to invite um, deeper accessibility um, through what is digital and also through our relationships, like who, who else can we be knowing? And um, knowing like this, this is somebody who we can can trust to steward this um, like physical resource um, outward towards younger community members. Um, so it's in process, but we've been um, yeah at least trying to get the resources together to do it. And I'm really excited to say that we have like um, at least a full edition of um, meaning like over 200 copies sponsored um, over this last year oh, starting the project. Thanks, yeah. yeah. So um, those, are, those are here with me in the space and like we're trying to find homes for them. But it's really, really great also whenever somebody's like, I'm, I want to be involved in this project and I want to see what you're doing and that person's like directly impacted by these systems we can we also can just send it to them because mm -hmm. other people have already held down the cost of, of producing it so. yeah. you know what i we we have like two two minutes to our hour and um i <laughs> i feel like this is going to be one of those conversations the what I'm about to mention that maybe we'll have to invite you back if you have the time for us and have a, a, wish, a good conversation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's it's about that, it's about that artivist statement you wrote. Like you usually don't rep the term artivist. And so, uh, you know, if if just quickly, if you if you can just give us a quick, you know, summary. <laughs> of of why that is or what's that about yeah no thanks for inviting that I'll say shortly that I think like that just instinctually artivism like feels like branding to me um I like try to notice like um less like because I know like individual people just like inherit language from like the spaces that we're in but I'm trying to like really zero in on like which institutions are using this like like what you know, like who uses artivism as a term and to what end? Um, and I think that um, a, another dimension of this for me is that like, I've seen really great uh, activism, really great organizing and really great artistry in my life. <laughs> and I feel like often when people are brought together to do artivism, it feels neither like great art making nor like great organizing. <laughs> and I think that that has less to do with like the intentions of like artists and organizers who are brought into those spaces and it has more to do with like other like fucked up inheritances like nonprofit funding and deliverables and things like um, I think that often like people are like and now produce this product so that we as an institution can claim the thing that you did like it feels like colonial display, like same as like DEI, like look at all the different kinds of people we have and what labors they do for us, you know? And so, and also I think that like my interest in, I think I will like continue to participate in activism, but what I'm really, really hungry to know more about and to be in deeper practice of is organizing. And I think like there's a lot of artists because like, being an artist has a very individualized kind of cachet, like who are influenced to be activists because that also like appeals to individualism. And I think like, I'm, I really want what I'm doing to serve organizing. And to me, what that means is serve something that's not very like um, loud or sexy, um, but is like slow and plodding and like for like our lifetime. You know, mm -hmm. and I think like a lot of 
activist projects, like I'm only, to me right now, like I'm only interested in activism that is supporting and emerging from organizing. Okay. Um, I mean, that's, yeah, no, that, that, that is, that's, uh, it's, 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 it's clarifying. And I think it, it definitely lends itself to us having an actual series of episodes with the, the, the practitioners um, that we've had on the show, the artivists, the folks who call themselves artivists, artists and activists, having a full conversation about that, because I think it leads back to how certain ideas have been taken and commodified because of, and I'll say this quickly, the first that I heard about artivism was from my Chicana friend in Los Angeles, and it came from the Chicano movement. And so for me, I don't see it as something that's sexy because people totally look down on the Chicano movement, <laughs> you know, the, the, the artivists coming out of that. And, but I also appreciate what you said about, you know, the separation of these things and how, when they come together, sometimes these nonprofits, it's about bureaucracy and what can you turn over? So I want to, I want to, Thank you for that because I, I really want to have this conversation. Yeah. And this, is, this is further because now we're we're over and my baby's back. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it, Janet. Like, yeah, we should we should definitely talk more. And and I think also just like there's not a lot of like popular education about what organizing is. And so like people sort of like default mm -hmm. to putting a lot of different kinds of really important activity under the banner of activism. And I think like, yeah, we could just like press into them. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. Well, oh, yeah. It's, it's always like- And why thing. people get into organizing too. Yeah. yeah, yeah totally. why? For activism, like, you know, yeah. Or talk about social practice in art schools, social mm -hmm. practice and, and mm -hmm. how problematic mm -hmm. that is. <sighs> well, Danny, here Thank we are. You all. Here yes. we are. Yes. It's time. It's, it's time. We we it's have time. yes. On three. <laughs> On three. On three. three. Uno, dos, <laughs> y tres. <laughs> so, Benjamin, thank you so much for coming today to conclude our episode today, which this is not a conclusion because we'll definitely be talking to you again soon. But in your utopia there would be mm, there would be um care for everyone uh, no uh nothing disposed of like everything being um used to like to sustain life and i think like people think of survival as like too base but i think like there's a kind of like survival that is is thriving you know like and I think um yeah just everyone taking care of everyone laboring together in a way yes. that is not work to take care yeah yes 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 with our purple unicorns behind us on screen now folks in the glorious cosmos in the magic <laughs> magicalness of whatever we call this it might not be artivism I don't know <laughs> But yeah, Ben, where can people find you? Mm, personally, um, I have this like hilarious URL that is jointhebenjam.org, um, which might change in the future. Um, my social media is simply my initials. Um, so it's B underscore LTS underscore on Instagram uh, and Twitter. And then um, this project that we've been talking about are using as a base for the conversation is that we are holding this dot work. Yeah, where people can check out the zines, where they can purchase them and sponsor them if they are interested. Yeah, yeah subscribe and you'll automatically be mailed stuff as it comes out. We're working on issues three and four of the zine right now, um, hoping for um, a release of the next one next month. So if you subscribe now, you'd get the prior two issues and a third one coming along the way. 
Perfect. Awesome. Perfecto. Yes. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, no, so, thank thank you, you so much. I appreciate it. I hope your eye feels better. I know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Reflect Recalibrate. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and to subscribe to our YouTube channel. That way we know that you love us. But for real, that way you always know when to reflect, recalibrate. Also, don't forget to look in the notes to this episode for information on the apparel that we're wearing, the resources that we give in the episode, as well as a PayPal link in case you decide to send us some love. It's always super duper appreciated. The more love that we can get, then the more resources we're able to provide you all. Thanks again. Text my boss real quick, let her know I'm running a little late. Oh no, sorry. I don't Maybe. know, Danny. I don't know if we're gonna be able to do half an hour shows because it'd just be too good. It's too you know hard. It's it too hard. So like it's but like that's, so much. What's good about aiming for thirty is that we get to forty-eight. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, our last was, episode was like fifty-five. I was like perfect. I was like, oh, oh. thanks, y'all. Just had to let somebody in. Oh um, no, it's all good. Worries. Okay, get back to your um, It's like I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, let me know when we're. <laughs> all right, we're ready.